0: Hi, Niklas, how are you?
1: Hey,
2: Katharina, I'm good, how are you?
0: Good, thank you. Uh, We'll start in like four or five minutes. So we still have a, a few minutes. Let me put the link up for your paper in the meantime. Hi Victoria. Hey. hey Patrick. We'll start in around 3-4 minutes. So welcome. This will be an interesting talk. Hi Cami. How are you today? Welcome. If you guys want to come up to the stage, feel free to come up to ask questions later on. Thank you.
2: Hi, LT, how
0: are you? Uh, If you guys uh, think this is interesting, feel free to share the room and I will start in like one or two minutes. Thank you. um yeah we'll, well i'll just share one more thing and then we can slowly start people will start coming in um it's still early here in the U. <laughs> what time is it nicholas where you are
1: uh yeah it's half past three now uh, i'm just pinging a bunch of people into this room
0: Ah, cool. so you right you're a clubhouse expert <laughs> because a lot of our guests because they've never they've never been on clubhouse <laughs> Thanks yes. for
1: i wouldn't call myself an, a clubhouse expert like you but, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: well yeah i'm not i don't know if i'm an expert like there are people that are way you know way more I do always the same thing. There are people that make like houses. Did, did you check out the houses? Are you in any house?
1: Uh, nope.
0: Yeah, I'll invite you to the science one that a friend of mine made. Um, that you know, people complain that um, that it's not invite only anymore. So Clubhouse kind of made a compromise now to make houses where you have to invite people to come so um, I guess it's kind of a compromise situation so um, after this I'll invite you to the science and philosophy or something (laughs) there are various houses so thanks everyone for coming I know it's early here in the US especially for Uh, people on the west coast it's too early they will just listen to the replays and um, yeah but uh, we should slowly start so welcome Nick and welcome everyone to Science Society Um, and uh, before we start let me introduce Nick to you um, so you know a little bit about him Um, Nicholas corner he is soon to be uh, um, a doctor. He, I think it's in October, right, or in November, where you, when you have your your thesis defense, he's at the uni. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> it's right. Or oh yeah,
1: it's a bit wishy-washy, um, but yeah, I'm in the stage where we're doing the formalities.
0: Perfect. Congratulations, and um, yeah, he's at the University of uh, of Amsterdam, at in the Faculty of Science, in the Department of Freshwater and Marine Ecology. Institute for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Dynamics. And um, uh, Nick uh, studied, um, he did this Bachelor in Science in Biological Biosystems Engineering at the Hochschule Bremen. Um, and uh, then he did his Master of Science uh, in Marine Environmental Sciences at the Nova Southeastern University and uh, he also studied abroad for a while uh, through at the griffith university um, at the gold coast in australia and then he um, did some undergrad research and he was teaching assistant and worked on different um, mentoring programs Um, and uh, yeah and recently he published this really interesting paper and cell which is a really great journal so congratulations for that and um, we usually ask like a couple of questions before we go into the research so how did you figure out that you want to go into science Uh, was that something you always wanted to do or was it like some book or a teacher or something that happened so you chose science as your life
1: or career well it's a tricky question because i'm not there yet i haven't chosen science um, entirely yet for some reason i've um, i've kept being pushed into that direction uh, often by mentors um, or teachers um, who just kind of said uh, i have a flair for it And I enjoyed it so far, but yeah, uh, my way in science is constantly one um, where I'm, yeah, I'm constantly questioning whether this is actually the right path for me or whether I should do something else. But um, so far, so good. Um, And yeah, I'm enjoying it for now. So that's why I'm doing it. Um, And what the future brings, I don't know yet.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's great. So you follow curiosity. That's perfect. Um, a lot of people that come here, you know, the invited speaker, they kind of say something similar. They just, they just followed what they were curious about, and that's how it happened. So that's really interesting um, research that you do. So, how did you choose to go into this field, and um, and. Eat? Is there maybe something interesting about this uh, project? Like, how did you, you know, study um, this organism and then this uh, type of, I don't know if you can say, behavior? Um, it's it's so interesting. So if there's some kind of uh, behind the curtain story, we would really like to learn about it. Thank you.
1: Sure. Um... I guess only few of us are lucky enough to in science really do um, their research based only on what they want to do and the questions they are curious about. Um, so I think for most of us, it's more a combination of that and whatever the environment is. So what are the positions that are being offered? And especially the further you progress in science, the, the fewer positions are available for you to actually do this sort of work. Um, so you kind of have to go with what is being offered and where, you know, where the funding is. Um, and if you're really that good, yeah, then you try to get your own funding. Uh, and if you manage to do that, you can really address the questions you're curious about. Um, for me, um, I was always interested in, um, marine science. So I guess that's why I kind of went into that direction. Uh, when I did my bachelor's, um, as you said, it was more biosystems engineering or bioengineering and all the projects I was working on in those studies were related to, you know, what companies do and, and, um, certain projects that are meant to optimize, um, uh, processes in the industry or to, I don't know, in some way make money for a business person and, um, I like that today, but back then I wasn't really into this kind of stuff. I wanted to be more, you know, more idealistic, more, you know, doing something I can be proud of that I really stand behind. And you know, nature was just something I was always interested in. And I, I did, didn't even choose biology in school when it was like I, I got rid of that subject as soon as I could. Um, but for some reason, you know, when I wanted to do something. That doesn't make anyone else money, but that is just something good that you know I can wake up and think this is great what I do. You know, it it drew me to biology because um, I'm a diver my entire life, or since I'm since I'm a little kid, and I spent some time in the tropics and I've seen you know ecosystems degrade um, and especially underwater. So um, people don't see that as much, um, but. I mean, we are starting to talk about it definitely, but back then, when I started, nobody was talking about climate change or about um coral reefs that are dying um and today, you know you really see that everywhere, but um i I knew about this thing that is happening, and nobody talking about it at the time. Um, so I figured, okay, why not give this a try and I applied for a scholarship back then that, that allowed me to go to the states and um, study directly on reefs and yeah, then I did that and things kind of went their way. Um, I was gone for quite a while, um, you know, I'm from Germany and, um, I lived abroad for, yeah, almost a decade. Um, when I decided that after I graduated in, in Florida, that it was time for me to come back home and to also spend some time with my family. I have a very big family in Germany. And that's sort of what I mean with, you know, you have to kind of align your own wishes and wants with what is there and studying tropical reefs. But at the same time, being located in Germany is a tricky combination. Um, And at that time, they offered this PhD in Amsterdam, where you would do your field work on Curaçao in the Caribbean. Uh, So I spent a good three to four months a year there in the past five years. but at the same time, it was based in Amsterdam, which is just a two hour ride home for me uh, to my hometown Cologne. Um, and so that made this position ideal for me. This is how I ended up there. And then the lab I worked in was a sponge lab. So this is how I got into sponge ecology. Uh, I was looking more into corals during my master's. But then, you know, because of this position and what it entailed, I ended up researching sponges as well. And I sort of managed to combine the two. So I am in a sponge lab, but I study coral reefs in general and and, and all the organisms in this ecosystem. Um, But yeah, this particular study um, I did with my boss and um, my student at the time, um, where we really looked into sponges in detail. And that's where this great study came out that we're discussing today.
0: Well, that's interesting that um, it drove you around the world. And I agree, doing something you feel like has a good purpose is like, and combine it with um, getting actually paid for it is really, I think, the ideal situation. So, congratulations to that and to this research. And um, yeah, if you want to um, uh, start or give us like a you know, an overview of um, the project and maybe this project, but also if you want to share um, also more broadly what you're working on. Um, Yeah, we are looking forward to hear it. So thanks and um, the stage is yours.
1: (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, So in general, as I said, I look into coral reefs uh, and what I try to understand is how, Um, how the system, like this this ecosystem itself, is sustaining. Um, So, uh, there's there's a whole bunch of things happening. There are a whole bunch of organisms in this space. And for some reason, there's this abundant and very diverse life, despite the fact that there's very, very little resources in those waters. I mean, when you're in the tropics and you, um you take a dive into the water you can see pretty far and that's because there's almost nothing in this water if you compare that to like you know temperate waters um th- there's almost no food there um so how is this actually possible you know we sometimes refer to reefs as oasis in a marine desert uh and even charles darwin was um quite curious about this when he sailed across the caribbean reefs and he was wondering about that he was putting one and one together and thinking okay for some reason there's this incredibly productive ecosystem um, but there's no there's nothing to produce on so how how is this happening Um, and this is what i try to understand Um, you could also phrase it in a way i try to understand how energy is moving in this ecosystem Uh, and that starts with the photosynthesis in, in this case, you know, the primary producers photosynth- uh, photosynthesizing, um, turning light carbon dioxide, um, and water into sugars, into biological energy. Uh, and then this biomass is dribbling through the rest of the ecosystem. This is by, you know, um, other animals eating corals and then taking this energy in, or corals release something like some organic compounds that other animals feed on. Um, so you get this very intricate web, um, like a food web, so to say, um, that really drives your system. It, it These links between organisms when they share resources and exchange resources with each other, and this includes things like feeding and pooping and, you know, as we're going to see, also sneezing, um, just a transfer of biomass. Um, and if you have a lot of these links together, then you get a very robust system where you can have external shocks like hurricanes or like um you know us doing all kinds of things like spitting pollutants into the water, taking out the fish. You can have all, all kinds of disturbances, and yet the system is resilient and persists because there are so many there 's such a diversity of trophic we call this trophic so energy connections. Um, that um, carbon will always be, or energy and biomass will always be transferred. Um, It will always be assimilated by the producers, in this case corals and algae, um, at very high rates. You know, primary production um, is as high as in some forests when you look at the coral reef. and this carbon, this biomass will always be shared and will always be turned into different forms that are then available for other organisms. And you get things like niche partitioning. So the higher the diversity of food sources, the higher the diversity of animals that eat these different food sources. Um, so you get, because of this high production and because of all these different links that sort of retain this energy in the system, you get this incredible, incredibly abundant life that is incredibly diverse and, you know, really colourful and beautiful. Um, and now what's happening is that because of our influences mainly, because of the climatic changes, um, most people will know that. Uh, core reefs are really degrading and they're really in, in trouble, so to say. Um, but, but at the same time, these links are still there. These trophic connections between organisms are still there. Um, And that's why reefs persist, they may not be as colorful and as beautiful as they were in the past, but from a functional perspective, um, they they are still working as they did back in the day. The links are slightly different and there's more carbon in certain parts um, or in certain types of organisms, whereas back in the day it used to be a different composition or a different constellation, but you still have this, main principle that you have a very productive and diverse ecosystem in an environment where there's almost no food Uh, and that's what i try to understand all of these little things i mentioned i try to quantify like how much biomass do we have on the reef in these different organisms and then how is this biomass being
2: shared between them
0: Um, is it just me or Nicholas, are you muted? or can Leanne can you? Yeah, yeah,
1: um I muted myself. i I tend to just you know uh, expand a lot and I guess you have a bunch of questions, maybe people people also want to ask something.
3: I wonder so if I, the mute uh, system isn't working as well.
0: Oh, leanne, go go ahead.
3: No, I was just wondering maybe the muting system isn't working as well because i it said I was on mute.
2: But if you heard something, maybe I wasn't really. Clubhouse definitely has its bugs.
0: Uh, Maya, did you did you want to ask something in between?
2: Well,
4: I just got here, not too long ago, so I'm going to take a look at the, uh, the document, or maybe you could brief me. out It looks like I missed a lot. And I didn't know this was happening. So is there a way maybe you can you have like a 30 second uh, version of the highlights you can update Nicholas on? Absolutely. Um,
1: yeah, I guess the, the, what I was just saying was more my general field of science and what, what I study, what I try to do. Um, I haven't talked about this paper specifically, Maya, so you haven't actually missed anything. And sure, I can give a quick overview of the highlights. Um, we basically found in the study that sea sponges can sneeze, that they, um, you know, they don't have muscles and they don't have neurons. Um, and although these, their bodies are very primitive, um, primitively structured, for some reason they can do all of the things that we do when we sneeze. They can contract the tissues, they can produce mucus and that mucus captures in this case particles that are suspended in water. When we sneeze, we try to, you know, prevent dust from getting too deep into our tissues and then it collects on this mucus that is transported up into our sinuses. And then with a forceful ejection, we sneeze it out. And these sponges can do the same thing in order to prevent that particles in the seawater that they filter clog up their systems or get too deep into their tissues. So they also produce this mucus. It captures these particles and then they transport it out and contract their entire bodies. And then the mucus uh, and the particles in them just get expelled. Um, It happens in slow motion, so it's like, takes 20 to 50 minutes for a sponge sneeze to occur at least for the species that we studied Um, and yeah it seems to be a very interesting discovery to most people I think the fact that people can relate to it um, and that we made these time-lapse videos which we can also show you um, where people can easily see what is happening was the reason why the study became so big um, and why I'm now discussing this also in clubhouse rooms and um, yeah, it became a pretty big story, but in the end, it just shows that sponges can
4: sneeze. Well, well, wait, that triggers something for me, though. Let me ask you a question. If that sponge could sneeze, I see that as a potential water pump, right? I mean, the way it acts like that, is there a way to basically do some biomimicry and kind of identify the mechanical processes or biological processes it's doing and what's the force that it's putting things at and could we create a biological water pump?
1: Well, you, you basically concluded for yourself just now what, um, what we have already known for a long time and actually studied and shown. They are water pumps, indeed. Um, so every sponge has the same type of morphology uh, internally. So they can, on the outside, they can look very different, but on the inside, they all look very similar. They have a system of canals. Um, and the, these canals are just embedded in tissue, in sort of homogeneous tissue um but these cells themselves align with certain specialized um or these canals align with specialized cells that can move water so they um have these flagella that that um circulate and then what what happens is that sponges suck in uh seawater in through tiny little pores that are on the outside uh and it travels through the sponge and that's where you know these these cells take up the food from it and then it travels outwards, um, out of and exits the sponge body through these larger openings, um, and you know that the biomimicry aspect is is an interesting one.
4: Um, I because yeah, uh, yeah, could we could, real quick could we biomimic that take that we mess around with this genetics make it a lot bigger, and then now we got a water pump that we could pump a turbine through and have some power. Whoa. Okay. So one okay. So one thing would be
1: to. Uh, genetically engineered, right? And that would actually be biotechnology. And we would now try to make organisms, um, that do certain things. And the other thing would just be to mimic the, the, um, water pump aspect. Uh, which one are you talking about
4: now? Either, I mean, either, or sounds fun to talk about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't thought about it from that perspective. Uh, I know there are some, um, some numerical studies. So p- people that do all these these air or hydrodynamics simulations that have actually modeled, uh, made three D models of a sponge and then um, simulated the water flow through these structures. And I think they also talked about a potential to optimize um, uh, certain pumping uh, tasks in the industries. But but I should. I should actually look into that
4: again. That's interesting. Can we, can we jam some growth hormone into it and make it like really, really big? And then now we got ourselves a big ass pump. Yeah,
1: but not without creating all kinds of problems along the way. I think.
4: Yeah, but if we get like cool energy because from, the big ass from doing that, we could, you know, do it in labs. What What is the
1: goal? What What would be the goal? Because make a, a, a big uh, pump. You can also build without making an
4: organism, right? Well, if you make a big, huge one, right, and it's self sustainable inside of the water, right, and it punches out a lot of water, like, a brutal, you know, see how massive we can get it, like size. Uh, uh, and then now you got a water, a, a basically a, a never ending water pump, dude, in the ocean. And it's
1: not just a water pump, it's a water cleaner in a way because the water that comes out of them is depleted from all of the stuff in it uh, because the sponges eat it. So, yeah, you, you could make gigantic farms of sponges and, and, clean waters but i think this is actually happening everywhere in the world i mean these sponges really live everywhere um to put some growth hormones in them and scale this up is definitely an interesting idea i haven't thought about that.
4: yeah why not just pump them up make them bigger farm them out there you go you got turbines running in there and you got maybe some forget uh, figure out how to get clean water in the process too
1: yeah, well, what's what's interesting is my boss actually tried to start a company once um, where he was trying to culture sponges to do certain things. Like one thing is, you know, uh, cleaning water would be actually a use case, but I think he was more focused on the metabolites that they produce uh, for clinical research, um, and they struggled with actually culturing these sponges so they are super successful and abundant everywhere in the world where you have water um, and they can deal with all kinds of stress but when you actually take them and you put them into an artificial system uh, they are incredibly delicate Uh, it seems to be a paradox but yeah they they the the company had to close down because they couldn't properly culture them Uh, and my boss is pretty smart so i'm not sure if it's that easy
4: (laughs) but yeah interesting idea do any, hey do any of these sea creatures or sea sponges like convert uh into normal water hey, could any of them do that or could we like put a mix of them or no nah. they act as filters is there any way we can yeah or, or, salt out no? you mean yeah desalinate use some bile find find a creature that can desalinate or you know if need be genetically modify it to desal- desalinate and that way it's already living in the ocean and then somehow we can filter out salt through it that'd be pretty cool yeah like that would start by
1: looking into whether people actually found genes that are associated with this function uh, i'm not sure if that exists because you have organisms that are either adapted to living in salt water or fresh water or a mix of it um, to actually and, and salt is usually something organisms want to get rid of rather than uh, extract so phew, also, an interesting idea, but not sure if it's possible if you actually have those genes in nature.
4: yeah, I could pop the, I, like, I like the ideation portion of it if, but I'll, I'll pass the mic because I could we could do that a lot, but um, I don't know. I don't want to take up the whole stage. Ah, <laughs> uh, interesting thoughts, definitely,
0: yeah, thank you. Um... I think the water filtering is is, uh, really interesting. And so the sea sponges exist in salt and uh, sweet water, like everywhere abundantly?
1: Yes, you have freshwater sponges. Uh, We actually have a sponge called the Amsterdam Canal Sponge, and um, it lives here in Amsterdam, in the canals. Um, And yeah, in brackish waters. of course, you have certain water bodies where you don't have any animals because it's hyper saline or, you know, super hot or something. But like all the normal water bodies on this planet, you will find sponges there.
0: Yeah, that is interesting that, you know, with filtering, um, that the, their characteristics of filtering and is the population staying stable with pollution or? Uh, are are they declining or are they even, you know, sometimes could be that they are even doing better, you know, like some fish that do very well in in like dirty rivers?
1: Yeah, so the general ecology of sponges hasn't been studied that much yet. Um, they either live in the deep sea, that's really hard to study, or on coral reefs, people usually focus on other things like fish and corals. Um, But we are starting to research that and, um, you know, there are very primitive estimates, but um, they seem to be the most successful animal on this planet in terms of abundance. So if you look at pure amount of biomass on this planet, they seem to be on top. Um, And yeah, there are studies that show that sponges are impacted by some of the pollutants that we introduce. Um, and there are other studies that show that uh, certain sponges actually benefit from it uh, and start outcompeting other species. So um, that seems to be an unclear aspect uh, at this point, and it seems to also vary
4: a lot between species. What if what if they
1: could be and used do they to like
0: live in symbiosis? Like, do they do all this filtering and everything by themselves, or are there bacteria and uh, maybe fungi or something? you know, are they working together or can they work independently, basically?
3: Yeah,
1: um, sorry, Mara, keep that question. Um, uh, Yeah, that's an interesting one, Katerina. Sponges are like all animals, uh, holobions, what we say. So they have, um, like us, a whole bunch of microbes in them, Um, but they actually also cooperate with these microbes um, in a symbiotic way. So um, we know that certain, Bacteria help them with the processing of certain kinds of food um, that are not available to many other animals. So, if you um, dissolve a sugar cube um, in a glass of water, then you have basically dissolved carbon, dissolved energy um, in that glass of water. If you now put an animal in there, it's not going to be able to to sort of drink this energy, this this dissolved sugar from the water because it's dissolved. It's not not concentrated into particles that the animal can filter out and sponges can do that they can filter out these dissolved particles which is why they have this access to this incredibly large resource because if you look at this water in the tropics especially most of the carbon that is floating around in there is dissolved Um, also one of the reasons why you can see through it Um, so they they take up this food and we thought initially that it's because of the microbes they cooperate with Um, and we can see how there is translocation of these resources happening between the microbial cells and the sponge cells in the sponge body Um, but it seems to be and this was a surprising result by one of my colleagues just recently that um, they uh, the sponge cells are actually the cells that take up the dissolved organic carbon so it's it's the animal itself that has somehow evolved this mechanism of drinking dissolved sugar from the water in which it lives um, and not the m- microbial cells. They actually benefit because they receive some of those resources.
4: Okay. So the the question I was also going to ask was, um, by the way, it'd be fun to do a room just on the, the commercialization aspects and finding like, or just kind of finding opportunities for this with a bunch of other folks like uh, Katerina and I and Actually, a bunch of others in here, you know, we'll jam out in our pillar track club at times and and kind of brainstorm around that. So I think this would be a cool topic, kind of get Ben Tristan to uh, get involved too. But um, can these sponges, I'm just wondering, can sponges be utilized to, you know, as water treatment facilities, right? Like if you just put a bunch of sponges, maybe some other bacteria that could basically... You know, and replace the chemicals that we're using to run water through. That's one thought. Another thought is, what if it could be? They could be utilized to decompose a lot of waste that we don't like. You know, um, I don't know. Maybe even play around with nuclear. Could it, can there's probably something out there in the ocean that could decompose nuclear waste? Right. That would be kind of a breakthrough. So, but these things potentially with their filtering properties, um, be able to process uh, waste or other things. And are there, are there freshwater sponges too?
1: Yeah, super interesting. I think from a chemical perspective, sponges are really gold mines, um, and really uh, gold mines we haven't tapped into at all yet. And that goes in both directions. It's the things they can deal with, the things they can tolerate and, and, and literally take up from the water that would otherwise pollute the system, but also the things they produce and the secondary metabolites that are for their immune defense that can really um open up a whole box of possibilities for for um treatment of diseases but um yeah it's i'm definitely down for one of those chats uh seeing how what what could be the things to commercialize uh sponge behavior or sponge function um my university in amsterdam is pretty focused on this aspect of actually cleaning water you can imagine here in amsterdam and netherlands they have to deal with that a lot so they actually use already a lot of biology to clean these waters they use um, microbial mats um, that apparently take up certain toxins Um, and yeah this would definitely be um, a big use case we also see that a lot of the we're, we're introducing a lot of the chemicals into our waters that we don't even quantify yet and where we're not even sure what the toxicity is. Um, so if you put sponges in there, they, you know, might be able to take up just the whole pool of, of stuff that's in there, whether it's now toxic or not. Um, so it might be sort of an opportunistic way, uh, if you have very polluted waters to deal with that. Yeah.
4: Yeah, you know who'd be cool. Um, I don't know. Hey, Katarina, if you want to mod me. Co- hey, Kurt, Kurt and Todd, you guys should come up here and jump into this conversation. You know, because I'm sure, like Todd, Todd's got Todd's another scientist too. And if, yeah, here, let me invite you guys up. But we should clarify yeah, whether on. it is
3: a conversation. Um, to Just make sure you know that he wasn't planning on uh, talking about something and then answering questions after. Um, is that is that? Oh, I didn't saying?
1: come. I didn't come in with a plan at all. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm open. Because
3: you know, I, I had a question, but I just didn't know we were onto that phase yet.
1: Yeah, if people have questions regarding the study, um, absolutely happy to talk about that
3: too. It's not really about the study so much, though. It's it's more about the general topic. Like you said, that they are um, fragile, and uh, I, I live on a reef and. Uh, so you you actually can't recognize if you look at the window that it's the same place because it um, the tide changes are four meters here per, like <clears throat> between high tide and low tide so in feet I don't know what that is um, more than twelve feet though and uh, and and so sometimes there's just ferocious waves crashing on the reef and then other times um, all the water is dried up and uh, it's very hot and so. So I'm just wondering any creature that lives on a reef has to go through so many change. I mean, especially here at higher altitudes where the tide change swing swings are, are greater um, has to be so r- resistant to change. And, uh, and yet you said they're fragile and hard to grow. So I'm just trying to wrap my mind about in that.
1: Yeah, me too. So that's a paradox I also struggled with. Um, and I have, or people have different ideas about that uh, i think the main thing is to not think about resistance or resilience as a universal universal um, way of dealing with all of the stuff that comes at you it's more of a um, it's more of a trade-off to adapt to things um, so you can increase dramatically over time with evolution, your resistance to a certain kind of disturbance. Um, particularly if it's a disturbance, like the one you described, where you have very intense changes, but at very predictive periodic cycles. Um, and I assume also that the amplitudes of change don't really vary. Um, or that at least there's a specific threshold change that, uh, you know, it can dry up this much, but if the water, let's say, stayed out for days, then all the organisms would die, of course. But but they can just tolerate the time that the water is gone and the heat that uh, that that um, they experience at that time. Um, but the it, the trade-off is that they can then maybe not adapt to other things. Um, if you then introduce a disturbance that this animal or plant is not used to um, suddenly the resilience almost drops to zero. That's, you know, that would be, I think the most logical explanation, um, because you always have very tight adaptations sometimes to really extreme disturbances, but, but you don't really see like when you have an organism that is, um, able to tolerate all kinds of disturbances, then the intensities of these disturbances that the organism tolerates are usually not as high as you, if you have an organism that really specializes on dealing with a particular disturbance,
4: if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you.
4: So we got Todd and Kurt and Gurek and Mark up here on stage. Welcome gentlemen and lady. So, um, Asking questions here about the sponges. One of the things we were talking about or brought up is sponges potentially for filtration, whether it's going to be for waste products or for water or and then the other fun thing. I don't know if this could be done, but making those things a lot bigger, acting as water pumps. You know, I wonder if we could genetically modify them to be a whole lot bigger and then get some water pumping action and uh, turn turbines or something like that, You know, make some power. And Kurt, I know you're inside the uh, mines a lot. I don't know if there's, you know, if we're talking about sponges, but I'm just curious what happens in other, you know, lakes and pools and things like that in the water and or down below. And I don't know, are sponges used to filter air down there too, potentially, or water? I don't know. You know and, and another question I'd probably have is, you know, everybody's kind of looking for CO2 removal solutions. Are sponges been studied at all about removing CO2 um, from water or not? I don't know if that's an option, but that's kind of, but if you guys want to ask questions uh to nicholas here about sponges on you guys go ahead
5: yeah it's kurt i actually haven't really come across too much in sponges for filtration underground or above ground in mining or in uh, power generation um they do have usually three stage uh filtration for particulates usually a rough particulate through a coal filtration then through some type of what could be deemed a sponge was more of a cotton filter than anything, and then an even further tightened uh, 0.01 micron filtration just for very light vapor uh, uh, hazardous or VOCs emissions. The actual use of sponge is probably too porous for what we see running that way. Even the water filtration plants I go to use very, very tight filters. I'm not too sure what level they get at, but it's probably be at the sediment level. I don't know what the costing would be on that as well for the actual mines or the heavy-duty industrials, usually goes through a separator first. So the big industries will have a separator underneath the large facilities. So I always wonder what would be used in a separator before it goes into the large vat of separation that gets basically pumped out by the large um, oil-separating and recycling companies. It has to get separated the main plant. Um, is there a sponge application for that, or do you know what they would use in that application? So that was my question. I'm Kurt.
2: Hey, whoa,
1: um I have to admit I wouldn't know if um, I I know a colleague that works on sponges and oil um, but more on the impacts so it seems to be having impacts uh, just like on any other organism um, but if you're asking if they could be used to take it out right or to, to separate oil
5: well, yeah, to, to, to get rid of it before it gets separated at the ground level, because there's always some sort of waste, so some sort of recyclable or more friendly environmental separation to get the oils out, because this process is still going to have to take place worldwide. It can't be avoided in the industrial world, but if there's a better, more natural or replaceable filtration system, such as a sponge, then that might be better before it goes into a separator. That's, that was my thought. yeah thanks
1: yeah if you if you have the water um and you can pump it through a system where you can place the sponges sure um i wonder if it wouldn't be a better idea to use microbes um because they are also easier to engineer they're easier to culture and then they're also easier to to uh, place wherever you need to clean the oil right if you have a spill on the open ocean it's going to be tough to use sponges for it but, yeah, I, I also interesting thought. I just wouldn't know if they are actually able to take out oils and then tolerate that. Um, I would be surprised actually if they could.
6: I would look at this and say that there's another uh, potential to path to chase down a little bit, and that would be more of a residential scale. A lot of people are putting in you know a swimming pool, but instead of Putting all the filtration, all the pumps, and all the chemicals and everything else that goes along with that, they're actually installing a natural pool or a natural pond behind it, and then they have very little pumping, so that the the pool water goes through this pond, and there's all sorts of plants and algae's and uh, microbes, and it's just a whole living environment eco- ecosystem in there, and when it comes out of the, the pond then it comes back into the pool as clean water. And I I think that would potentially, I don't know enough about sponges or how they, you know, how they propagate and what tolerance they have to various contaminants and stuff before they, you know, die. But I would say that's probably a more applicable um, scale to use a sponge, you know, where it could, tolerate just a little bit of this contaminant or that contaminant and make quite a big difference because essentially you'd be taking that one house off of the clean water system in some fashion, you know. Yeah, I would absolutely agree
1: with that um, on that scale. And I can almost say with certainty that um, they will definitely clean the water to some extent. So taking out microbes and uh, also certain compounds. But the other thing is that they also produce things um, and they also poop things into the water. So we would have to study the species um, or which or stu- try to find the species that do exactly what we want them to do um, and don't produce anything else
4: that you then have to deal with afterwards again or maybe it's an ecosystem right of stuff you know i'm curious i don't know if you know or if anybody else knows i'm you know the more i hear about it's like this scientific thing can do this this scientific thing can do that as far as functionality is there like a database anywhere that shows like biomimicry and like because i see all these studies all over the place right i'm just wondering is there a database where this stuff is combined in one spot and then it kind of discusses the uh maybe beneficial functions or applications that something does um that we can kind of see all in one place and start to pick oh well if you took this here and took that there and took that there and created an ecosystem out of it then it w- you could do a lot of stuff it seems like w- what i'm seeing happening is we're entering a, an age of integration right like digital like we got digital integration but even with with science right with there's so many breakthroughs around the world you know that having everybody connected and and having kind of databases uh, where everybody's contributing into to identify functions and then uh, collaborate together uh in ecosystems to do filtration maybe it's a sponge and some other microbe and some other thing you know you know like Todd just described a, a process of a few few items but does some the such database exist at all um, I I don't know any but
1: it would be really nice if we had one um, it's especially i mean you're talking about the, having like um, a database for the different functions of different organisms um to potentially put them together into a system yeah
4: yeah yeah cuz if you have the functions then you could kind of like other people could get get in on it and kind of say hey well this this does this that does that what if we mix them up then we could produce this right and then yeah. or, or, you know or just something as basic as like hey here's the scientific thing but here's the practical here's some applications that have come out of it, you know? And then if you just have a, you know, it's like applications, you, you do know, put a little, uh, check mark, do, do some search and it shows you all the different applications that something does filtration, sponges, some other things, some other thing. Oh, well, let's mix them all up over here and create a multi-stage process. Use the sponges first for the big stuff. And then you're talking about micro stuff then micro stuff. And then, you know, what's the input output of these different systems, you know, um, maybe, yeah, and also
1: different types of microbes. Um, into all kinds of organisms and what they do from from that perspective yeah in terms of how can it be used to um in, in an industrial process um or industrial ecological ecological we should say um th- i think there are these sporadic small beginnings of integrations so i see um there are, databases where people put all kinds of traits of corals, you know, these, this is how fast they grow. This, these are the things they, they feed on. This is what they poop out. Um, and then other databases that do that for fish. Um, and I guess there are a whole lot of these, um, but they're never from that perspective in how, how it can be used. It's more like a pure scientific description. Here are the rates, here are the amounts, you know, this is the data. But then we would, you would still have to put a team together that actually compiles this database and then adds the specific applications. Um, unless you really want to, you know, search into all these different databases and try to define those for yourself or like try to identify them from those data, which is not always very easy. Hey Katarina, um, you can, um, yeah, uh,
0: deep mind, like, you know, those, they are have- open source that find like new proteins, new drug targets, um, they can crawl through um, different databases as long as they are publicly available. And you can determine what characteristics you want, what the threshold is, you know, let's say the rate of filtration and um, probably then you put the filter in. uh, It shouldn't um, uh, discrete like, this and this and that uh, you know you can exclude certain things and stuff like that and then just uh, they i would come up with with different solutions like there i don't know when you publish this paper did you put it in a repository i know that genetic stuff and like microorganism genetics and stuff like that usually um, you know federal funds and so on ask you to put your data into repositories that are publicly available. And even for everyone, if it's behind like NIH, it's really not a paywall or anything. You just have to write a short summary why you want access to those databases and they give you access. They just want to kind of know what you're doing with it and then then you can get access to it. so, yeah, you can use those open source AI tools to kind of come up with solutions like this.
4: Well, I mean, one thing you could do, Katarina, if you want, like, I know you got the website and you've got Science Society and these things. Maybe you know how you ask questions. Maybe you could just, you know, have a QA session of what the applications are, the ideas, and then just basically, like, have that as a tag-on piece, of just a simple Google sheet. Hey, we had this person come and here's what they got here's a link to their papers and then here's some application uses so it's not doesn't have to be a full because you know doing api searches and all that sophisticated but i think just having like just the speakers you, you've had on here in in the science society we could just you know put something together and i think it'd be nice to bring them back all, all back on to do a jam session and just see how we could just uh you, you know get everybody's technologies you know talking about them and and uh see what kind of mixing can come out of that you know you, uh, I have a better
3: idea, and that's that you wouldn't just have the applications; you would have the offspring ideas. So the ideas that were born as a result of that idea that built on it in some way, and then you'd have like a um, a, a genealogy of of these ideas, and uh, you'd be able to analyze that as well. I think that'd be cool.
0: Yeah, I've I've been wanting to plan this, you know, to have this round table kind of discussion to bring people together. Like since I started this actually, uh, to have people then, you know, bring them together and discuss together and come up with maybe solutions. And I also wanted to create a physical space for it. And also since, you know, I started Science Society. Um, So yeah, I just would, to be honest, just like plain more time to do all of this. I just need more time. It's not even necessarily money. It's just more time or some people helping me, but it's really yeah, hard. That's a, that's
3: a point you know, that you, everyone crosses at some point in their career is the shift from not enough money to not enough time. But I, I just wanted to briefly go back to something else Nicholas said, and that was um, how originally he wanted to take an idealistic
2: path and um, Pursue you're in the sure matrix
3: and uh, yeah, yeah, but i but I mean, I mean, the reality is is that the biggest breakthroughs the bit the the breakthroughs that eventually give rise to the most um, new applications are those that were done in the name of just the pursuit of science. Because if you're you're pursuing knowledge for knowledge's sake, like, you know, one idea grows on another idea, it grows on another idea. You end up with something that is so different from everything that's come before that you don't even know what the applications could possibly be because you're in a new new worldview. You've entered a new era. And, uh, you know, when electricity was and then they didn't think, they, what, what can we do with this? This is cool, but what can we do with it, right? So, um, so yeah, that's why I, I think, you know, it's nice to, know, you know, the applications are, are great, but you know, and like what he was saying, like every time you come up with a new application, every time humans sort of, sort of distort nature to um, benefit themselves in some way, then there's these new byproducts, these new side effects that weren't anticipated, and then you have to do something new to keep to deal with the byproducts and side effects. Whereas, you know, maybe just going back to the the pure goal of, of just thinking about human ideas and how did this idea build off of that idea and then give rise to this idea. Um, that'd be really a, a cool part of this undertaking, I think.
4: Do you remember? Hey, do you remember the micro the the microtubules you had, Katerina? You remember that one? Yep. Okay, so that doctor, I mean that that was microtubules. That was MedTech, right? I spotted in there. I was like, wait, dude, you're delivering little packages on this little magnetic track, bro. That's pretty cool. That's needed inside of AR Glove tech, and I connected them with the CEO of sensory X and they, they met and they're talking and they're, they're like working together on stuff. Right. So like, I think, you know, we can have more, um, you know, let, let's maybe have a pathway for the scientists here to come in, jam out and talk about their science. And then, then we can do another room in the pillar tribe where I bring in all the scientists and engineers, you know, the, the, and the entrepreneurs, investors over there. And we just sit there and like figure out how to unlock more potential out of all this tech coming through here, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. I- Oh, I'm kind of split because I want to hold the space for curiosity. Um, And if people want to come up with ideas and collaboration, I know Eric uh, started collaborating with Marco Pettini. He's a very basic physics uh, um, scientist uh, from Italy, pretty well known one. And we had a bunch of collaborations coming uh, from this, but I think it's getting more and more rare to have spaces for pure curiosity and not something you have to make money and to, because as soon as you have that in mind, it kind of changes the broadness. You do things also uh, for moderating this. I I know it from when I started doing photography, just for out of doing photography, Um, I did a lot of different things like, Crazy things, not so crazy things, different things, and then I started getting traction on Instagram. I had a bunch of exhibitions and galleries told me what to um, put more out there, uh, what to hang in their galleries. So you start kind of narrowing it down to some sort of what people want from you and expect from you, and yeah, that I mean that's a well brought
3: known, well-established phenomenon.
0: So I'm happy if this happens for people, but I want to keep this space for curiosity's sake, coming here and discussing these projects, and not with having some application in mind if that happens anyways like if may you come in and start talking about some idea and people think it's cool that's okay but I don't want to have this in my back mind because I then I would start sorting things out subconsciously for oh what would be a hot topic to discuss on campus and what would be hot for people and engineers to pick up on and I don't want to go in that direction Oh, of
4: course think do no no I get it I get it but and well what I've noticed on Clubhouse like like right now you know Nicholas and me are <laughs> pinging back state, back channel he's like let's do this let's make this you know and we're pinging and he's gonna get his boss to come in so but it could be a, like I said this you use different spaces for different things like the space we're doing the pillar drive that's what it's about it's about collaboration and getting stuff so you know it's like hey maybe this idea is cool and if you just said hey if you guys want to talk about this idea to further deep dive then we could do like a different room on it maybe if if there's interest outside of here that way everybody kind of folk stays in their lane right and because there's a lot of other guys that come in that pillar tribe at times and i'm like you gotta go talk to katarina to go do the deep dive on the science part you know so it could be like a a feeding system back and forth if
1: i can jump into here, yeah. um i think that's a good discussion you have to have but maybe you should have that in in a separate room um and i also would i don't know what if if i understood katarina correctly now but like um as excited as i am about talking about how to commercialize um you know sponges um or whatever they do i also have to um yeah be more humble in this sense because it's extremely early in comparison to the other things you guys talked about like the the other type of research that people have done for decades and then compiled all these data in already certain ways how how they might be applied for for what i study here and um, what sponges take up and release into the water these things are at a completely different stage so um just so for reference um we have over 11,000 species of sponges that we described but that's where it ends we know about for about 50 species we have we have properly measured uh their flow rates um using you know sound and like good measurements um, there's this very simple way of measuring it, but it's quite inaccurate. And then that has been done quite a lot, but this, the, this is not reliable data. You would need the proper data of which we have almost nothing, especially when you look into the actual compounds they take up and release. Um, th- there's even less data on that. So we're, we're at the very beginning. Of looking into these organisms in, in that respect, and I think we need a few decades, maybe a decade, if we're quick, um, and it does pick up, um, of time to, to study these things before we can actually have these kinds of conversations with respect to, um, using sponges just because we don't, we don't know so much yet. And I think that's also what, um, led to my boss not being able to commercialize this because he, he i think he was just way too early Uh, if you only have two or three species you can work with that you sort of know what they do that's not the time to talk about the potential they have for certain applications or for whatever applications Um, it's it's the time to just really ask the question what do these animals do and then look at that
0: yeah thank you for that and i think it's really interesting for two reasons like ones that you know humbles us how much we know like maybe there's a microbiome compound that we don't have in artificial spaces like some tiny thing like could be some tiny algae fungi um, or some bacteria that just dies at certain ph levels or if there's not enough fluctuation i don't know like uh, you know combined with how many hours, at what type, maybe it's also the type of light that comes in through the um, through the water in that specific place where they live and um, you know, you have to kind of maybe filter out some light, um, so which is really interesting and important to realize because, um, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially on Clubhouse, to terraform Mars and other places and stuff like that. The same thing can happen to us. Like, when we go somewhere, we have all these factors that make us survive. And if we want to sustain that for like years and years, we forget about one tiny thing that we didn't realize we actually need for our, you know, growing of plants and and stuff. And we'll die, and that's it. Like, um, we always forget to, like, we don't have enough knowledge of all these tiny factors with time, specificity, and intensity um, to create those ecosystems for ourselves yet, which is really interesting and important to realize, uh, I think. So, yeah, thanks for pointing that out, Nick.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that, but, uh, I also do think that there is merit in, um, leveraging technology to at least attempt that at least with microbes. Um, if you ask me in, 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 terms of this discussion of, you know, how can we use nature, um, to make, you know, processes more sustainable, more circulating, um, and self-sustaining, then, um the CRISPR is really um another gold mine here um because especially when you have simple processes uh that you want to happen such as splitting oil or like um taking out certain compounds or maybe adding certain things to certain mixes from a, from a just purely industrially chemical perspective um we it's just about finding The gene in nature that does that in some organism and then engineering it into your microbes that are easy to culture and that um you know you can just turn off or that automatically turn off when certain environments kick in that you can also program this is really the way to um to do that i think and that's i think what will open a lot of doors um to improve these industrial processes and to make our whole economy more sustainable.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had guest speakers here uh, using that, um, Dr. Liang, she um, fermentates gases from like uh, farms and, and factories um, with bioreactors that are constantly, it's not something she has to constantly replace because she you know, screened all the genes and then manipulated them from different um, microorganisms and can turn that gas at a negative CO2 rate uh, into acetone that can then be used again to use as fuel. They, like, uh, fueled a whole airplane and it flew across the Atlantic Ocean. And they are scaling it up. So, yeah, there are many people working on it. But also, Dr. Levin from Tufts University would tell you, you don't need to go down to the CRISPR gene. He makes xenobots, like organism robots, basically, that perform different tasks without manipulating the genes. It's more like what what you kind of expose them to, and then genes can be used in different ways. So he doesn't have to change the genome to make them uh, perform different things, those xenobots. It's it's really interesting uh, research I would recommend going there. But um, you were talking about the the ecosystem of the coral reefs with the different CO2 pockets that are kind of changing uh, with uh, climate change. And it kind of surprised me. I didn't know that the coral reefs, even if they are bleached, they are still like surviving so so could you explain a little bit more I think it's really interesting like how are they doing really and and what changes like is it just a few species survive or do all of them keep going just in a different way I think that's really interesting to me how they are adapting basically
1: yeah, so the f- the first distinction one has to make here is um, the between the organic and the inorganic carbon cycle. So the 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 whole processes I described before, like um, I mean, photosynthesis is sort of um, in between these two because it takes inorganic carbon, carbon dioxide, and this process t- turns it into organic carbon, sugar. But then my current research is revolving around all of the organic side and what happens to this organic carbon to this biomass um but that's the tissue right if you look at a coral it it grows by secreting a skeleton that's the inorganic tissue and then the coral tissue itself is actually just a very thin layer um, of tissue on top of the skeleton it builds and it continues to secrete a skeleton um, taking up calcium and then carbonate ions and turning that into calcium carbonate. Um, and then, the, so the skeleton grows below, bigger and bigger, and the the thin layer of tissue remains on top and also grows, but just laterally. Um, and this, so the organic th- cycle is one thing. And, and from that perspective, coral reefs are actually sources of, um, carbon dioxide um, because of the met- metabolism because you have a lot of animals there and corals are also animals that respire they produce carbon dioxide uh, it's only the algae that live in them that then use carbon dioxide and turn it into oxygen so um, that's, the, that's the one side and, and reefs are sources of, of carbon dioxide the, the other side is Um, This inorganic process where it secretes a skeleton and this is what forms the reef. And then over time, um, with a lot of compression, it turns into uh, eventually limestone. Um, And um, yes, you mentioned bleaching. That's when the algae that live in the corals disappear because it gets too warm or also when there are too many nutrients. Something that kicks off this photosynthesis process and really makes it, go into overdrive so that the algae produce way too many oxygen radicals. And these would destroy the tissue of the coral. And in order to prevent that, the corals expel these algae. And then all you see is the transparent thin layer of tissue. Well, you don't really see it because it's transparent. All corals are transparent. And what you see is the skeleton below, the white skeleton below. Um, So if you see a white coral, shiny, shiny white, that coral is likely alive but it has expelled its major source of food, which is the algae that photosynthesize and then translocate these sugars to the coral host. Um, So they are effectively starving. Um, When you see coral reefs bleaching, all those corals are starving and they are trying to deal with the stressor, which is most often temperature um, and more and more frequently. at some point, and this is also what I, we had this before, um, with the adapt- adaptation, right? Um, I think it was the that asked that question, um, where I said that it's, if, if organisms adapt, it's usually quite specific and there is a threshold. So corals can tolerate extreme heat, despite the fact that their major food source is gone because it goes into overdrive. Um, but only for a certain time. And then when it stays too hot for too long, um, they fec- effectively die and starve to death. And then you get these overgrowth by algae and they start looking greenish, brownish. That's when you just have, you know, macro algae growing on the dead skeleton.
6: Uh, so that's the process
4: of Okay, so I figured it out. Okay, here's how we market the problem, okay? You get it people don't know that that coral reefs that the coral are basically animals they think that they're plants they're not they're animals they're, they're, right so we need we need to make like a video of like puppies and doggies that are sick right because of the temperature fluctuations and then replace the coral with puppies and doggies down there and be like this was really going down these are animals just like your puppies and doggies right and then what happens is when the temperature and all the co2 and all this other junk is thrown in the water right it increases the temperature and then they start to get really hot and sick and then their food goes away because it's so hot and then they get basically die. And then people will understand what's going on in the coral. Le- 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 uh, the coral reefs a little bit better.
1: Yeah, but that would be nice. But corals still have no face uh, and humans tend to just associate with and and feel for
4: those animals that have. Cute faces.
3: Yeah, yeah that's what. Oh, that is no problem in this era. We just paint them some little animated. Exactly.
4: Faces. That's what you just you just put little kitten faces, dude. You just put a bunch of cat faces and puppy faces on the coral reefs. Man, you're gonna have a lot of people start getting in on the coral reef action. I'm telling you, just put a little yeah, animate the puppy faces. It yeah, is a good idea. K- uh,
1: kitten faces definitely
4: a good idea. I think I think it'll work. I think it'll work.
0: But the question is, could we engineer those algae that usually? Um, you know, um, are in symbiosis with the coral reefs to uh, not overproduce uh, with rising temperatures. Yeah, we are. That, I think, and then you know, seed them out like that. I don't know if that would be okay to do because I don't know what the <laughs> what we screw up next. But uh, wait, uh, wait,
4: can you do it the other way too? Can you? Can you? Can you? Uh engineer them to pump out a lot more oxygen and then you go stick them inside of like you know like fish tanks and stuff and then now you got yourself some like you know shooting out oxygen and they're busting out their photosynthesis
0: oh, inside yeah. of the People fish tanks right yeah
1: they have these separate tanks full of macroalgae and then you just remove some of it every Yeah, but, but,
2: then. It, it yeah
4: but, growing, can but can you can you genetically you know get some CRISPR go in there start modifying them and basically trying to tune them to optimize uh, to, to optimize to put out a lot more oxygen
0: well, yeah, yeah. Of course, people are doing that, but that's the problem, right? Uh, that's currently the coral's problem because the more um,
1: yeah, yeah. So the it's the radicals that that are produced during the process of photosynthesis. So if you if you up that process, you increase the
4: problem. Um, but the the regarding but your that's, question, that's, Carolina, but that's um, in the that's in the ocean, right? But out, like where you would probably want that problem inside of like, you know, freshwater uh, fish yes. ponds and stuff and like that.
0: It, but I don't give a shit. I give a shit about the corals <laughs> <Yeah>. right now. <laughs> so I'm
4: it's... telling you, puppies and cats, I'm telling you, puppies and cats, because they're <laughs> animals. People don't know they're animals, like corals are animals. And, and and most people don't know. They look at them and they think they're plants. They don't know that these are like literally animals that are dying on, on you know, just like if you had puppies and animals dying up and down everywhere, or the yeah. turtles. Yeah. Or even you the can grow
7: them like but plants.
4: But to answer that
1: question, uh Katarina, people are doing that people are actually looking into ways to we call that assisted evolution um and we we're not trying to genetically engineer the algae that live in corals but there's an incredible diversity of them so when i started doing this sort of research um people would were just Calling these different algae clade A, clade B, clade C, and then that turned into clade A1, clade A2, and so on. And eventually, we started giving these algae proper scientific names. So now we have they're called symbiodinium algae, and so we have symbiodinium thermophilium, which is a, uh, one that is found in the Red Sea, where temperatures during summer can go really, really high, um, and we we can isolate these algae from these corals that can tolerate higher temperatures and for longer. And we can implant these into larvae or into early polyps of corals, of other corals that we culture in the lab that then harbor these other types of algae and thereby become more resistant to temperature. And then we can plant these corals in other reefs where uh, in the the Indo-Pacific, for example, in the Caribbean, where they would then resist these temperatures and and at the beginning there was this moral discussion because you're playing with nature and you don't know like when you look at these connectivity studies you know the red sea is quite isolated there's no real genetic exchange between the corals there and others and, and you you don't really know what you're doing there and then we we started with trials of that in the in the laboratory and people quickly started finding uh, this trade-off again that I mentioned before—that um, yes, you can implant these these thermophilium symbiodinium into your corals, but then they don't grow as much. They the growth rate goes dramatically down. So th- there's a trade-off here that we haven't really understood. But if your corals are resistant to temperature but don't grow, uh, you know, a certain growth rate is also important to. Persist because of other types of disturbances. Yeah, if you don't grow enough and you get predated on, you're eventually gone. Um, so, yeah, it's it's difficult, but yeah, people are doing that already, and we are we've we've passed the point of discussing moral dilemmas. It's more of a desperate um, mentality now, where it's like let's find, you know, the most resistant uh clades and let's implant them into fresh corals you know we're collecting the gametes when they when they you know corals spawn right they just release their their sperm and their eggs although some species um, where the female sucks in the sperm and then you get internal fertilization but usually they just release their eggs and sperm into the water and then they fertilize there and the larvae develops eventually settles and forms a, f- a new polyp and we co- we're collecting these gametes, and we're we're doing all of this process of larval settlement and early polyp growth in the laboratory, inoculating them with these uh, more resistant algae, and then trying to scale up the process of planting these out onto the reef. Currently, we have a problem with mortality rates, which are really high uh, once we planted them out. So now. Um, teams are starting to uh, build in intermediate steps where we have these pools that float on the surface that have thousands of sediment tiles in them. uh, And, and all these larvae there, and it's sort of an intermediate stage so that they're out of the laboratory, but they can grow, you know, strong and big enough to avoid being predated on or being scraped off by something. Um, And yeah, it's an incredibly hard and and tedious process as you can imagine and it's hard to scale that up but yeah we're doing that
0: yeah that's interesting because we had a few um uh, researchers here that um um, study uh, microbiome not just in humans but in different settings we had one um studying forests and um which one survived after um, a specific harsh fire. Uh, what was the name? A uh, super fire or something. Yeah, that's not the right name. I will remember now. Um, That, And then the, the other one is in humans, but he's also doing that in agriculture too, based on all the different microbiomes that get screened. He collaborates with those labs. Uh, to then design uh, with machine learning, with the learning, um, what type of like microbiome ecosystem would be ideal for what type of circumstances to design like treatments for cancer patients um, and so on. But he's also now collaborating on agriculture project, so maybe that would actually be a great collaboration. Um, that but for that. We would need enough data and i think it's only starting that we collect all this data also in the ocean and in different environments you know screen for all the microbiome and by that i mean you know bacteria also viral components, because usually they are pretty big viruses in the ocean that kind of collaborate with the bacteria and then you have um, the fungi and the algae and all these different ones. So is there also work going a lot towards that direction now? Because if you guys have a lot of data, maybe it would make sense to collaborate with him. And he's a really nice guy. I just have to remember the name right now in a minute.
1: Yeah, Um. I'm, I'm about to schedule another room with Ma, where we could definitely talk about that. Um, what kind of data were you asking now for?
0: Like in general, microbiome data from, let's say, coral reefs and, and the sponges and so on, if you have like all the different genetic... Corals, corals different,
1: yes. We have yeah. the microbiome and we have a lot of data. Um, and there are databases for sure. Um, but sponges, uh, almost none. So our team is actually one of the first that is uh, looking more closer at the at the microbiome of sponges.
0: I don't know now, Doctor Hero. If you want, I can send you his yeah, sure. his contact. Yeah, he he's he's really good um, in designing. Like he he made like this deep learning trained system to like design. Then what's ideal for what situation?
4: Are you talking about the one with the AI for the gut guy, uh, gut biome?
0: Yeah, but he's also working on different biological systems like for... yeah, yeah,
4: yeah Yeah, yeah. it'd be so cool for this and please like they need they, they need to do this cuz like by the way I'm pissed off at these people man, right? Like I love to dive and they don't know like, you know, th- these coral reefs, right? A lot of them are just like those species are just there that spot That's it and then they're gonna kill them and then they, they go away, right? They don't come back You know, there's a lot of that happening And you know, I mean, I'm a diver. I'm sure you know, Nicholas. You probably dived. I don't know how many. I imagine you've dived thousands of dives, probably. You know, like, I don't. It's it's how how bad is it out there now?
1: Well, there are days where I cry into my mask. That's for sure. But then there are also days that make me really hopeful because um, not all the reefs are dead, and there are sites that I've studied where you know you have a hurricane and then your entire reef is just gone and it's incredibly sad but then 10 years later it recovered Um, and sure the slow-growing corals need a little bit longer but you can see that this ecosystem is just regenerating Um, and this may not occur as much as the the opposite the degradation but, yeah, it's, it, it definitely makes you a bit more robust for the sadness of what we produce down there sometimes.
4: Yeah, people don't understand the sadness, man, because these are animals, right? So these are like like pets. Like when I go down and I'll like dive around, I'm like, these are animals. These are like animals. Imagine they're like, like your pets, and they're all over the place, and then they start dying, dude. It really sucks, especially when you get to know them. Like I'm sure, Nicholas, you know, you, you dive the same sites over and over as you're studying, and then you see them go away. Like you see him die, basically, just like an animal, just like a pet died. It it really sucks, man. Yeah, that's why I started. Um, And that's why I eventually said,
1: okay, if I'm gonna do something good, then let me try to save the reefs, or at least try to understand better how we're degrading them, um, to then down the line be able to better manage them. And that was when I went to Egypt, my dad took me and my brothers to Egypt when we were 13, I think, the first time, and then um, we—I was able to go back there um, every two to three years, and I would visit the same sites. And then certain sites were suddenly not, in, not even on the cards anymore. So of the dye shops, So I would go there and say, "Like, what happened? Like, where's the site?" Uh, yeah, we we don't go there anymore. So it's like, why not? and then with this he's like yeah um hard to describe maybe we can just show you and he took me uh, and my brother to the site that was just a complete zone of rubble it was completely devastated there was just nothing alive anymore um and then seeing that was really a sort of a trigger that uh, i was incredibly sad i was really devastated for a while and um took me some time to get out of it and then you know i just did my thing i finished school i um, went to study and then first technology biotechnology and then when the decision came to do something else you know that experience i think was really uh, um, the yeah the deciding factor i think why i went down
6: this road this may be kind of a naive question and maybe it's out of out of the realm of possibility because of scale or something. but is there any kind of uh, artificial assistance you could do to either the whole area or sections of the area that are critical and like maybe change the temperature just enough if that's the one factor that would make the biggest you know move of the needle or maybe change the acidity or whatever it is that's that's the one factor that would really Help these to regrow or to stay alive or something like that. Yeah, unfortunately,
1: it's not that easy. And we we sort of figured out what the problem is, and we've really defined it down to the core. Like we know that ocean acidification, like water being too acidic, is going to be a problem down the line, and we know exactly what it's going to do to the growth rate of corals and the development of reefs. Um, but like and we know that the temperature these heat waves that become more frequent and longer um, are the main reason why these reefs are bleaching and the corals are dying and we know that when we dump too many nutrients into the waters um, that these ecosystems that are adapted to being very low nutrient environments or in very low nutrient environments you know suddenly turn and then they cannot recover anymore from bleaching, so we have to keep those out. We have to keep the fish in because it grazes off the algae so that there is free substrate for coral larvae to come and attach um, so that recovery can kick in in the first place. We know all these processes, but the solutions are just not grabbable. Like they're just not, I mean, how are you going to reduce the temperature um, in, in a part of the ocean? right? That's that the energy you would need in order to do that. And the structure you would have to build if you even could do that at this scale, uh, because it constantly receives ocean water, sometimes from the deep, sometimes from the surface, sometimes from the south, sometimes from the north. That's yeah, it's the system is too big and too vast for us to really, uh, manipulate in a meaningful way, unless we, Go to the source of the problem that's why for us it's always clear okay we have to keep you know how whole carbon dioxide thing um that's the problem We we have to stop the planet from warming uh we have to stop the oceans from acidifying and we have to stop you know dumping nutrients in them and taking out all the fish that's basically it um trying to do symptom treatment is trying to you know do uh you know uh Culturing or engineering on a planetary scale, and we're just not there technologically
7: Nicholas, do you think uh LED lighting um can help the these uh, corals grow because this is what is done You know indoor in aquariums um could could this process be done um in the ocean? Well, light is also
1: a factor that can induce bleaching. So it's usually the combination of light and temperature that makes this photosynthesis go into overdrive. So, you know, first of all, if you add LEDs, they would likely not be as strong as the natural light there. In aquaria indoors, we're just trying to mimic that natural light, right? Um, and even if you were able to meaningfully increase the amount of light, it wouldn't necessarily be good for the corals. So not enough light is not a problem they have. And and boosting growth with more light, yeah, you could probably do that in the winters. If you you know can place these LEDs over reefs.
6: So shading wouldn't be the alternative solution there, right? yep shading would be a solution
1: um i think people tried that also so in experiments we definitely did that and already showed that you know you can shade parts of the reef and then there's less bleaching happening in the summer um but you also then if you now try to scale this up and you shade an entire reef then you limit the amount of exchange between the atmosphere and the water or you induce some sort of other barrier that then leads to other problems so i think i'm not sure why um maybe people just haven't looked into this enough, but uh, they have definitely started, but it didn't really become a big thing. I'm not
2: sure why.
0: Uh, Dennis, uh, you joined the stage. Do you have a question or something you wanted to comment on? Thanks, Katarina.
7: Yeah, I was uh, curious, Nicholas, how... Um... How you stay hopeful given the scale of the issue and what seems like an unwillingness of a lot of parties to cooperate uh, then I first have to ask hopeful for what um for the future of the oceans sea sponges any you know anywhere you yeah. see the problem yeah. um
1: the immediate answer is because i've already made peace with the fact that certain things are going to happen um so i'm not hopeful anymore that coral reefs in the future will be as colorful and as vibrant and as abundant globally as they are today um because that trend is just going to continue um i am hopeful though that there will always be spots um where reefs are still surviving and indeed thriving those will most likely be spots that are far away from us like on atolls um and for that i think i do have to be hopeful that we are going to be able to limit the pollution of the ocean at least on a global scale so that that by the time and you know what you see in certain lakes when they are tipping uh, what you've seen in the baltic sea which is incredibly polluted and carries almost no fish anymore um, that could happen to the global ocean and that is actually happening to the global ocean right now we are on this trend um, and if the global ocean tips then we will have impacts on a completely unprecedented scale um, unimaginable and th- this is a possible future that i've had to learn to make my peace with but we have a lot of time until then um, at least more than I think most people think or assume. Um, and I am hopeful that we're going to be able by then to to change things and to uh, deviate away from that tipping point. Um, and if we manage, then you will have coral reefs that will be thriving. Um, what I'm also hopeful for is that you will always have corals. And we will always have reefs. Um, they may not look as nice but they will be there and they because you even see today that yes many corals are disappearing but um, then a they're not disappearing entirely they're often only becoming locally ex- extinct somewhere I mean, only um, and b the some species are actually um, benefiting also so you even see corals that uh, grow in abundance in response to these increased frequencies of heating events or uh, increased frequencies of hurricanes. Um, it always pushes, you know, um, it pushes the framework to one side, but you will always have organisms that are better adapted to that one side. I also don't think that reefs will be as diverse as
7: they are today,
1: but they will still be there.
7: that's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah. The extremes, um, nature has a way of dealing with every sort of scenario. So thank you.
2: I completely agree. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We've been going for like, um, hour and a half, I think. So if you wanna, um, move on to do other things with your day. Uh, I wanted to give you a chance to do so. Um, and yeah, let me know if uh, that room comes about, uh, then I will, I will come. I'm always happy when people come out of here and start new, you know, have new connections, start collaborating, that's always the best that can happen. And um, so I hope you enjoyed coming. Thank you so much, Nick, for your time. This is really interesting, and I congratulate you again that you go along with your passion, what you think is right to do. It's not not an easy thing to do, uh, I think, to actually follow through with it. And then on top, publish this amazing cool paper that everyone talks about. So congratulations, and I wish you all the best and all the funding, and yeah, if you want that, me to introduce you to dr. hero uh, he is uh, at the University of Michigan then um, I can I can send the introduction email and um, yeah good luck with everything and I hope you get to sometimes also enjoy still diving
4: so so Katerina we were talking to the back channel so I'm gonna create a little group message between me, you, and uh, Nicholas here, and uh, we'll just find a slot. I told him 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. Central Standard Time, and then so, whenever your two slots work, boom, pop the room up and uh, go do it. And oh. it's it's not it's not really commercialization stuff. It's more along like application and problem solving, and and just it's really about the problem solving. That's the fun part. Like you've been in there, you know how we do it
1: yeah I love that like defining problems and then looking into nature to find solutions <coughs> um, yeah, definitely thanks for having me here and uh, it was wonderful talking to you guys. Um, I do have a bit more time, so technically, I have twenty five more minutes if anyone else down there has a question or wants to talk a bit more about it, provided one of you guys up there has has the time for it um but otherwise yeah i'm also happy definitely let's let's schedule that other room
0: oh yeah if you have time we can we can keep talking it's uh, it's an interesting topic so um yeah i don't i'm not sure how um you know how you would um to go you know we talked about this different solutions like shading and filtering maybe out some light i read that another problem is that because of the increase of um, the heat that um, algae are kind of, and also all other, like all kinds of microorganisms, they kind of grow a lot. But the problem is that the concentration of nutrients is not increasing, so that different organisms, like fish that eat them and so on, they kind of feel full, but they are actually kind of starving off of nutrients. It's like fast food for us Uh, is that also an issue in the in the coral reefs ecosystem
1: that's actually a great question and one that we are just starting to address um, because yeah you're absolutely right you have different quality of food sources Um, so when you look at um, all of the all of the food that floats around uh, some of it is actually we know that already we call that refractory so it's not really biologically available or easily digestible so it just floats around and nobody really uses it um but we just that's already where our knowledge ended until recently so we knew that like 80% of this type of um, food is not available 20% is available and so on but um very like a few years ago we started with this new way of looking at things we uh, called metabolomics so we're now having the measurements and the tools to really measure these food sources whether that's just biomass that's floating around or whether it's actually lipids that are embedded in bacteria that are being filtered out or whatever it is we're actually able to look at the quality at the actual compounds and how Good the quality of them is as a food source to be you know embedded biologically um, so yeah we're just starting to characterize that and we can't really say what is a good food source yet um, in, in in terms of uh, quality we can just say it in terms of quantity
0: Yeah, that's really interesting uh, and yeah, really important to design those systems to survive. Um, and then the other question I have is, how true is it still that we kind of think, you know, evolution is so slow? Because I have been reading, especially this year, papers that kind of point towards the direction that evolution probably was pretty slow when not too much changes but that there is fast mechanisms that are kind of um, showing up uh, where kind of some species adapt really fast so do you see that like in the coral reef ecosystem too are there maybe some uh, species that are kind of showing a surprise rate of adaptation or changes
2: Um, it's hard to study that
1: um, because you would have to like to just go through the entire life cycle of a coral um, and then get its gametes make a polyp out of it grow that into a, a coral that's large enough to then be reproductive again and then catch its gametes like every generation would take you know, even for fast growing corals, um, a couple of years at least. Um, So that's really hard to study, but I remember, I don't know much about this, but I remember there there was a study that showed that some corals can adapt really quickly and that if you extrapolate that, that would mean that they could actually adapt to the heat that we introduce and to the changes we introduce in general. In a matter of decades which theoretically could be enough time for them to actually adapt and it's um, it's definitely in in all of the modeling projections uh, how corals are going to be doing and how reefs are going to be doing uh, in response to climate change with the different scenarios um, in in those studies it's really hard to integrate the, this, this ad- adaptation rate. Um, that's always usually one of the big downfalls of all these modeling efforts, um, and the least well-characterized parameter. Um, and there's certainly debate on this. We, we, we know how the mechanisms work that you have epigenetics. So the expression of genes that can be, you know, genes can be more or less expressed. And you have different ways of adult corals to, to translocate that to their larvae. Uh, and then these larvae, again, will, will express the genes that they receive from their parents, you know, on the one side, based on the parent on, on the history of the historic environment of the parent, but also based on its own environment during its larval stage. And um, so if you extrapolate that, then you do get, um, you know, pretty quick, uh, theoretical adaptation rates. Um, but again, it's just, we, we haven't collected the data in the last few decades. So we we've, we've started collecting it maybe a decade ago, um, and following the same colonies, you know, so that you can actually look into adaptation. Um, and I think it's too early to say, um, if they're gonna adapt quicker than what we project in our models, or if they don't. Um, And for conservancy, we usually um, admittedly assume that they don't adapt quick enough, but they might.
0: Are we freezing samples that we could revive? Like I know we are doing this in agriculture with like ancient seeds and so on. We have like vaults in Alaska and different places. To basically have a backup if something happens, do we have that for different marine organisms?
1: Yes, we actually have that in um, Curacao, where I did most of my field work. There's a foundation called the Kamabi Foundation, and one of my PhD colleagues/slash advisors is actually uh, the head of this department, and they. Um, they do incredible research. there. They're basically the hub of, in the world, um, training everyone how to do this. Um, yeah, this whole larval propagation. So they they train people how to how to go out diving, collect the gametes, the the eggs, and the larvae when these corals. Um, spawn and then how to process them in the laboratory and then how to make sure they survive let them settle on artificial tiles and then dump all of those back on the reef in order to assist them with with the recovery process when there's like you know when there was a big bleaching event and you want to sort of kickstart your your recovery then this can be a way to do that if we manage to scale that up
4: um, Wait, hold on um, quick question well, can't you just, the, the problem with that process is you're coming in after the fact, right? Uh, the bleaching begins and then you got to catch up. So why not do that process ahead of the time? And then my question is, if it's spitting out these larvae, can you make it produce fast and like make a lot of larvae? And is that larva potential food for any other, I don't see, because if you farm things, right? Like, we're never going to run out of chicken, right? Like, chickens are not going to go extinct. Neither are cows, neither are anything that's farmed, Right. Um, so it, I, what I hear there is a potential farming process that is, uh, outside of the, uh, ocean right next to the ocean on, you know, uh, and that farming process, if we could take the coral reef and create basically a, literally a farm on the, on, on you know, an artificial farm, um, to have backup and whatnot ahead of time, but also to potentially, uh, uh have a, a food source. You know, I don't know, I don't know if those, if it, Makes sense to do that, but it sounds like if you get a biological process and do it on the saltwater ocean, you know, can't, can't, can't yeah, you keep can yeah. farming?
1: Well, as a food source, I think it's not feasible. You can just make some shrimps, it's much easier than to uh, go and collect coral gametes and, and rear them in the lab because it's quite an expensive process, which is also why it's so hard to scale up. Um, but uh, let me quickly. Um, answer katarina's question and then uh then i go back to this um there so what they're doing at kamabi is and there again we're quite quite early so there, for for many of the coral species that are out there we don't even know when they spawn so we don't even know which nights we have to go out because they do that at night um to actually collect this the X and the sperm that they release um, so they're trying they're finding out at which nights these called sperm and they um, uh, spawn and they find for one species they found that um, there were certain colonies that were spawning at one time of the year and then there was another there were other colonies of the same species so you look at the genes same you look at the morphology same you look at the beh- behavior all the same except these other colonies would spawn half a year later and it doesn't really make sense for why there would be this divergence but one of the things they did is because they do freeze up these these bundles of eggs and sperm uh, and we cryopreserve them and especially exactly for what you said katarina in order to have these backups and not lose these species so for many of them we have cryopreserved uh, gametes, but for, for for many species we don't yet. Uh, so they're building up this base. Um, um, and th- what they managed to do for this one species is they collected the gametes from one of the species, cryopreserved them, and then collected from the other species and they merged them in the lab. Uh, from the from the other colonies of the same species and they would merge them in the lab. So now we have hybrids and it's going to be interesting to see what happens to these, or what's up with these colonies. Um, and we're hoping to find out why there would be this divergence by actually you know, making hybrids of them. Um, but that's an interesting thing that came up in my mind when you asked that question, Katarina.
0: Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. And also the behaviors, like the sneezing. and So a sponge, is it considered as an individual or is it like units? And then the interesting question from a, to solve, you know, there's, we had the discussion with Dr. Levin and also with other um, speakers that I had, like another biologist that I, and AI people, like how many units do you need and how tightly connected do they have to be to generate an individual that makes like, a behavior that makes sense like when you grow these corals because you were talking about behaviors and and sponges because it's such a different system right to what we usually studied like mammals and and, and, or at least vertebrates like how many individuals do you need like how big does it have to be to create like a sneezing behavior or something i don't know what the coral behavior is but um yeah, do you do you know like how large, like what's the limit? Did anyone check like how many units it has to be consisting of?
1: Um, no, because um, from a, so a sponge, one big blob of sponge is one individual. So um you can cut it in half and then you have two individuals so it'll just grow keep growing right you just need a small piece and as soon as as long as it has some of these canal structures it will survive and and then grow um so it's it's just one big blob of tissue um and, you know, some of them grow in vase shapes, some of them grow tube shape, like the ones we studied here. Uh, some just form sort of carpets contouring the, the, the substrate. Um, and yeah, so from, from that perspective, if, if you have um, a small piece of sponge tissue um, that can channel some water, then that's an individual and that individual can sneeze and do all the other things. Um, it's basically a homogenous mush of tissue that has a sort of a skin and that skin extends inwards to form the canal system, sort of like our gut, um, just that it branches off. Um, and you have all these branches within the tissue where water is channeled. Um, so that's how a sponge is composed, uh, for coral, that's, um, a different story because a coral um you basically have a larvae that uh, you know after the sperm and the egg meet and fertilize they form into a larvae and that larvae has a certain amount of energy storage so it can swim around a bit usually they actually they they hitchhike on vertical currents so they swim up and down to move horizontally um, by s- sort of smelling where the water is flowing above and below them and then they just move there in order to hitchhike these currents. Um, and then they settle on a reef and then they form a single polyp and that's an animal and that co- that will always remain an animal. a, a, a single coral polyp is an animal. Um, and it has it's like a um, it's like a jellyfish that turns upside down and settles on the bottom. Um, So it develops these tentacles and then also so it can can catch plankton and other things from the water and it has a mouth and it can feed on it Um, and it has these algae in its tissue that also give it sugars from photosynthesis. Um, And then eventually this animal will bud off into two polyps. So now you have two animals. Um, every so and and this process keeps happening and and Some of these corals have polyps that are a millimeter in diameter and some of them have polyps that are you know up to Ten centimeters some of them are just remain one polyp that then turns, you know almost fist-sized But most corals are colonies of individual animals individual polyps Uh, and there you just need one to perform all the functions that corals do but then once they you know you have a colony you can see how they start collaborating how they start sharing resources they channel it in their tissues but they also channel resources on mucus that they stream across their surfaces and um, they fight together by you know releasing stringy little things that clump together into we call that mesenteries, so they're like attacking arms um, to fight off algae and, and other things that compete with them for space. Um, so there's, there's a collaboration happening um, of different animals in almost every coral, except those solitary ones.
8: Yeah, Jo's question. Yeah. Um, sneezing. Makes me think of bringing up this hypothesis that not a lot of people know about, in case it might interest you, and that is the um, toxin hypothesis of allergy. And um, you know, we typically think of allergy as a malfunction. It's just who knows why your immune system is just going haywire, reacting to harmless things. But um, the hypothesis was originated by. Um, a a scientist named Margie Prophet, and I posted these in the chat. And then later there was a really interesting review article published on it by um, Palm et al. It was out of Yale and it was in Nature. And that was like in um, 2012, I believe. And then over the years, there have been a number of studies that have supported it. And there's even a field it's more known in Europe, they're calling allergo-oncology because a lot of the studies have been related to cancer, that um, allergic responses um, may be protective for at least some types of cancer. So anyway, I just thought you might be interested in that and wondered if you'd heard about it. And, you know, as you're talking about sneezing, getting rid of things that are negatively affecting the the sponge, um, it's kind of related. Thanks, I'm done.
1: Yeah, that sounds um, interesting. Could you, so what, what exactly was the hypothesis?
8: Yeah, the, so what the hypothesis it... is that, um, that there at least many times, um, and they haven't always worked out why, you know, why some, you know, say pollen might be toxic to you, um, that the substances you're reacting to and your responses are meant to eject the allergen and that by reacting to it and reducing your exposure and I think even behaviorally, you know, avoiding it, it may have benefits for you uh, because you are, you know, and they they make this um, good case, I think, in the nature paper that, you know, the theory that allergies may be more common because, you know, we, you know, they're designed to fight off parasites and that we don't have as many parasites and maybe that's why, they, they make a good case that it really doesn't make a lot of sense, um, that that hypothesis. For one thing, most parasites, um, it's a kind of a long process, whereas, um, you know, allergens are, you know, allergies are especially notable for the extreme rapidity of the, the reaction. And, and I can't remember all the arguments they make, but, um, Anyway, I think the original article by Prophet back in like 1991, she talked about certain toxic components of peanuts, you know, and peanuts are known to be a very severe allergy. And I think some of the allergo-oncology papers, uh, in fact, I put some in the chat, um, at least one that I hadn't um, seen before, was a fairly recent one. Uh, But the allergo-oncology papers, if you look that up, there's only very, you know, not very many, and they're fairly recent, but it's interesting because they found a dichotomy between certain cancers being lower in people with allergies, and, um, but not every kind of cancer. But I think the cancers were more related to, um, you know, things that you might imagine would be exposed to the environment more. And so might be more relevant to the allergic response. Well, so. that's
0: interesting. It's kind of going away from the topic because autism, people with autism spectrum disorders are more prone, like the uh, occurrence of allergies is higher in that population, but also cancer occurrence is way lower. Like, especially um, like autism, um that's has a genetic background and so on um those people are protected against different type of cancers um they they never get them Uh, there are some interesting papers about that so
8: that would be really interesting to look at that (laughs) genetic. yeah well it might be that they're ejecting the allergens more I, mean, I I don't know if they if they these people in the allergo oncology field have addressed that issue or not so i'm I'm not up on that but anyway there there's still a lot to be learned but um yeah, he was asking me more about it, so I just was explaining a little more about what I know about it anyway thanks I'm done
2: yeah so I
1: think there is a link to be made um but i don't know much about uh, how allergies work um and like a peanut allergy for example doesn't you don't really eject anything right you just, um if it enters your body you you have certain reactions but are they are they tied to an ejection of something
8: well um i i don't know you know there there's certain you know things about anaphylaxis that seem counterintuitive in this hypothesis, because of course, if you die, you know, it's not very going to do you much good. But um, so there's still, you know, things not explained, but you might want to look at that nature article and and it would give you an overall perspective on, you know, how they make sense of it. But for one thing, you know, if you can imagine, if your throat starts swelling and you you get discomfort, you're going to stop eating it. so, but the anaphylaxis clearly is an overreaction because, um, you know, if you, like I said, if you die, it's not going to do you any good, but if you were to, if you were to stop eating it, then that would do you good. Um, if you didn't get to the point of dying.
1: Yeah, that's an, definitely an interesting hypothesis. And I like it would sort of tie into the trade-off thing that we, we mentioned earlier, but, um, how like you know a weakness here can be a strength there and um whether it's you know you're more prone to allergies but less prone to cancer or whether um you are coral and you're more prone to temperature but you're better at growing um maybe those things are you know based on the same underlying principle
8: yeah i think that's that's just the point yeah definitely
0: the interesting thing was we had the other day, uh, last week, was it last week? I think it was last week. Um, I guess speaker here um, talking about how he uses different lights to, um, for food engineering and also for food safety, like to kill different microbes in and foods. Um, and the interesting thing was you can also change, um, specific uh, characteristics of food like you can make mushrooms um, make vitamin D uh, and then and have kind of enhanced food or the he said uh, one collaboration turned out that um, you can p- you can make peanuts uh, be uh, trigger less allergies uh, by um, exposing them to specific wavelengths um, in, a, in a specific pattern so that's kind of really interesting. And then, I mean, it's kind of connects together that also what um, Michael Levine says. He says, we have like this library of genes and then what type of proteins we can make. But how you really use them, it's kind of the key. We don't necessarily need to change the library itself. If we change the environments in a specific way, we can make um organisms uh completely change like how they're using their genes and this is just you know he does it in a very um you know he uses machine learning and all this stuff to design this like xenobots and stuff like that but this is kind of a different way of um doing this which is kind of really interesting to me and it goes back to how we can help the coral reefs and the environment
8: well, just just one quick fo- quick follow up, you know, when you think about certain diseases that are increasing that involve allergy, and in fact, they've even been a big study correlating autoimmunity with allergy. You know, we do have more toxins in our environment, and there was also a paper that cited the Palm paper that indicated that perhaps microbes could be some of the things uh, that the body is trying to eject, and there is known allergy to bacteria and fungi, although it's not very much studied, I would say. Anyway, thanks, I'm done.
7: I had a quick, going back to this idea of um, the same species spawning at different times, I was wondering if that could be linked to local conditions, and also there's a human agriculture technique called succession sowing, where you sow seeds throughout a time period so that you have continuous availability of the resource. Could that also be a potential reason for this to be happening? Too too much availability of the resource, you said? Well, to, to have a... So you you uh, sow coriander um, e- once every month or so, and that way you can always have a supply of coriander. Could the coral be doing something of, uh, or the sponges be doing something of this nature to continuously be having um, more offspring?
1: Um, yeah, so do you mean feeding them basically, providing like an additional source of Nutrients or energy um, to help them cope and reproduce. Yeah.
7: Yeah. Is that um, and do we do we have a like a lot of data on this? Has this perhaps changed over the course of human observation?
1: Um, data definitely exists. I actually published a meta-analysis once where I um, collated some of that and if you combine all of the data from different studies and you look at, okay, they put some corals in aquaria the and they you know, fed them this amount of uh, artemia shrimps, and then they gave them this amount of light, and then they increased the temperature or they um, made the water more acidic and they looked at how the corals would react. And then you take all of these studies together and you see what, um, you, tr- you correlate the response that was measured in these studies with the amount of food that these corals received in the form of shrimps or you know tiny tiny little shrimps that they can catch with their tentacles or um or some extra light um well light was a more complicated response but like with with extra food it would help them so they would actually so the the effect you were describing does kick in in the laboratory when you make these experiments so the more food you give them the better they cope Um, so theoretically yes you could uh, sort of attempt to increase the amount of particulate food that is available on reefs Um, that's actually yeah i think that's an interesting idea maybe some people do that already and i just don't know Um, but yeah that, that would definitely be worth looking into
2: Is... Could we give them antioxidants,
0: <laughs> like Sorry? blueberries? No, I'm kidding. Uh, could we give them antioxidants, like feed them blueberries? No, I'm kidding. You know, we are
1: actually, there's, there's armies of divers that are applying antibiotic ointments on corals, especially in the Caribbean right now, because we have this new type of coral disease that is just, um, yeah, crossing the whole Caribbean and killing corals. There's been diseases since, yeah, for decades already. Um, But every now and then you get like a really massive outbreak, and that's happening now. And yeah, you we actually have divers that have syringes full of antibiotic cream, and then they go and they you know they push it on them um, in order to prevent the spread.
0: Oh, so we could give them something that boosts maybe their you know immune system or uh, Resilience against anti, you know free radicals from the algae to maybe expel them less
1: Yeah, I mean these treatments happen, but the problem is always scale so uh, Obviously the these armies of divers they are able to save maybe one percent like maybe there would be one percent more mortality if it wasn't for them if you know and that's a high estimate so the problem is always scaling up whenever you have to put divers in the water to actually go to the coral and do something things get expensive
0: so are there sponges that produce free radicals <laughs> can we put them next to
2: <laughs> now
6: we're talking so you know and is the for rov application of uh, you know, like an an on, autonomous ROV um, machine that can apply the the antibacterial to the reef. Ooh, um,
1: yeah. If if you can have an army of um, robots that deal with the uh, uh, salt water, that deal with the pressure, that. Um, remain stable in sometimes turbulent currents and then apply an ointment to a fine coral that is easily damaged. Um, I don't wanna be pessimistic, but that's that's a hard machine to build, especially if you have to build a lot of them. Uh, well, not well, We,
0: we have this um, robot um, researcher here that made this um, hands, flexible hands that you can 3d print in it's like available um, to the soft very fine-tuned hands uh, that you can 3d print and use actually with air pressure but i would say you could do that also with um with water pressure um to make this a very soft fine-tuned um, hand movement. <laughs>
1: what? Yeah, it's just not, um, it's just not that easy to make robots that operate properly on in salt water at, you know, 20 meters depth, because, um, it's, it's very expensive to make these leak tight housings. Um, <laughs> and if you want to build an army of it, it would not be
4: scalable from that perspective. Wait, hold on, hold on. How to do it. What? I know how to do it. Hey, um, Ben, remember the dude, We had that was making the, um, gosh, what was his name? He he was making the robotic fish. Yep. You remember him? And he was talking about making swarms, right? Um, So we got to hook him up with Nicholas here because they're trying to figure out how to save a bunch of coral. I mean, those are animals. Those are like little pets down there that just don't have faces. Imagine little kittens and doggy faces on the coral. Each one of them is an individual animal. A lot of them are dying. And so... They're basically going out and doing a lot of uh, uh, functioning things. Like, for example, it will be nice to have these things swarm out. And he was talking about surveillance. Remember uh, putting like doing surveillance? Like, perfect, boom, put some sensors in there. Swarm these fish robots out, right? Um, by the way, Nicholas, there's this guy here on Clubhouse, man. That's what he do- he's, he's working on. He's, he, he's ambitious. He's going after, like, swarms of fish to mimic the fish and basically have swarms of these things underwater but based on what you're talking about that application of what he's making just to be able to detect when the cucumbers spawn as an example right if you can have the surveillance down there uh checking them out that'll be kind of cool and then going in and doing the application of the antibiotics right the injections that would be also pretty cool so with the
1: with the spawning observations absolutely that's that's a great idea i think um with the with the application of the um antibiotic ointment again i think there's there's a lot of complications still like these um, reefs are also incredibly complex from a structural perspective so you so you often have corals that grow under ledges or in little cavities um so reaching those would be you know always a challenge um there's always the risk that you then also create damage because you bump into things
6: um, I, I have a question yeah. about like could you apply a food paste and an antibacterial in a gel format that gels in the water, kind of like fish eggs do or fish poop, um, that that way it gets applied in a cloud formation, similar to the way fish spawn, would that be effective enough?
1: That is, I've
6: actually just
1: seen a study uh, a couple of weeks ago, or, or a couple of months ago, um, where people do that. So they, they put these little packets, um, of antibiotics and it slowly diffuses into the water. So it's like a, uh, long-term treat you, you need a diver place it there once, um, alternatively just dump them, um, over the reef from the boat, and then they release it slowly over time. But then you need to be sure that, you know, your antibiotic isn't general enough to like kill a lot of other things um yeah that's i think the challenge but people are doing that
4: okay so the stuff we were talking about earlier would be fun to bring in uh ben into the conversation remember how we we're talking about okay so ben these sponges uh so uh and nicholas here is like a, a top scientist in the uh, in his group or like the type scientists in the sponges arena and what we gather is um basically there's not that many people doing this, and a ton of sponges to study, and they're pretty cool, right? Um, they actually sneeze and um, produce, so I'm like, they, they could they could be like water pumps potentially. And I was uh, questioning uh, this is, would be just a fun area to go down and see if we could play with it. Can you inject them with growth hormone make them big? And then I got water pumps that are pumping out water because they sneeze. It you know, and it'd be interesting, Nicholas, if we could tell us maybe the the numbers around the sneezing and if you extrapolated that up like what does that mean in terms of kinetic energy that we could transfer into uh electrical energy if we wanted to create a big old farm of uh, cucumbers pumping water and uh, capturing that energy Uh,
1: in terms of energy i don't think anyone has quantified it yet Um, again we know the flow rate of about 50 species so how much they pump Um, And as far as I know, for many of them, I am the only one that has actually tried to estimate how many of them are on a reef. Um, So you could extrapolate that. And yeah, if you have enough, like big enough sponges, they could definitely perform the role of a pump. Like, let's say you have, this is a very, very rough estimate now, just based on, you know, numbers dribbling in my
4: how head i'm gonna pass it to ben because he's the numbers man right he can convert if you tell him he'll he'll ask you what the cucumber does and then if you grew if you grew it basically and then how much water it pumps and then he could probably convert that he'll be able to rapidly convert that into probably a some type of mechanism or motor or turbine or, or, or tra- whatever the best transfer mechanism is to turn that into energy because he, he's a pro at that
1: Yeah, just just to give a quick reference, like if you have a sponge that's maybe the size of an arm, um, that sponge probably pumps two to three thousand liters of water a day.
4: Ben, you there?
9: Yeah, cool. Hey, how's it going? So um, <laughs> I can't believe I'm in in, in a conversation. I have mean, only got fifteen minutes, by the way, before my room. But I can't believe I'm in a conversation about sponges being used to generate power. But okay, let's go. Happy <laughs> to consider. They filter. Uh, top level like One
0: one very important aspect. They filter water quite efficiently. So.
9: Oh, that's awesome. As then they clean cleaned
4: it up. You mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it could be used for also like, like there's a lot of uses, dude. This is this is just a fun one. Make it bigger, turn it. Into no, no, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
9: so, so, energetically, if you were to try and do that, firstly, all the energy that you that you get out of them would come from their food. So the the reason to do this would have to be that you've got abundant source of food energy that they can grab hold of that we can't for some other reason because they can't pump more, they can't pump more water. They can't put more energy into the water than the food they consume. In fact, it'll be a lot less than the food they consume because presumably they have some metabolic heating for a start. Um, so that efficiency would be really interesting to know. Um, what's the metabolic efficiency of them? So if they're pumping like mad all day, you know, if you incentivize them with whatever you do, board Ape NFTs or however you incentivize a sea sponge, I don't know, um, and you got them really doing their thing. The question is, what proportion of the calorific input that they put in in a day could they actually put out as mechanical work? Um, I don't know. It could be really low. It could be quite high. That would be interesting. And then the other thing would be coherence. So a whole, the sponges, you'd have to if you had a whole bunch of sponges and they weren't all pushing in the same direction, they'd cancel each other out. So you'd need to. The question is, how efficiently could you could you capture it? Um, so um, that would be my main question. Why? You know, what's you're basically turning food, whatever they eat into into um, probably electrical energy would be the, be the most efficient. It's an interesting idea, um, for sure. So, and then the other question, if you want to look at it from the other side is, okay, you're saying they pump a certain number of litres per day, but I can't calculate the uh, the power or the energy production from that because it's not the units are wrong. You need to know something about the velo- either the velocity at which they pump the water out, uh, but also you need to know how they would respond to a back pressure. So if uh, they would have pump unrestricted, that's fine. But in order for them to do any actual useful work, um in addition to just pumping it through they're gonna have to do something like spin a turbine or whatever they do they're doing work and what we don't know i guess is how much their output degrades when they try and do work against something when they try and push against something so they'd be i got it i got it by the way i got it i got it i got it ben check it out
4: here's what we do are we going to take our shit literally our waste we're going to give it to the sponges now it's got itself a big old unlimited food source all the poop all the junk potentially potentially maybe i don't know they're studying this stuff right but if that stuff could basically be a food source for the sponges, hmm there we go. Now we got more interested. Uh, 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 now it could be a power source, especially if we could blow them up and make them bigger. And uh, what, I mean, it's like, it'd just be interesting to kind of, I think, no, I wanna know what are the pressures, because he's measuring these these sponges and what they do. Like, what are the pressures they're pushing water at? And then and then assume we they, they, that we, we, we pick the right ones that the food is the our waste, and and extrapolate that up and see see what that looks like
0: i think the filtering system is the most interesting one because we have the need for clean water let's just go here in the u.s right and uh where was it mississippi where they can't drink their water they have to get uh more like bottled water uh, for months now uh because their water filtering system just doesn't work um so jacksonville you know, if they would have a sponge system that cleans uh, it out passively, that would be really interesting.
4: Dude, I'm sure you could use a sponge as a foundational platform product to genetically come in there and inject with a bunch of cool stuff and genetically m- create some interesting filter. You could filter out the water and the waste and also pump water at the same time. Mm. I bet we do that genetically. So, so that's definitely possible.
1: Um with the genetic engineering, I think so. But the sponges right now, they're not those kinds of superheroes. Like they, they do clean the water, but they take out say 90% of the microbes. Um, and if there's toxins in there, it depends on the concentration, they can take up uh, some of it, but, but they're not gonna leave like definitely drinking water quality. Um, so that, that would need to be tied into different processes. Regarding your question, Ben, um we do look at the energy expenditure like what 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 do they consume and what do they what do they spend and usually we do that by just measuring the amount of oxygen um, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide they produce right so um, by just looking at the process of respiration we get it sort of an estimate what they produce uh, what they spend uh, overall for everything um um, but not everything is respired. Some also turns into biomass, right? So some of this energy, the food they take up um, turns into their actual biomass um, and they will just grow. And you could just, you know, cut them if they grow too big um, and it's sort of, yeah, storage of organic carbon. Um, and yeah, we discussed before how they can actually take up all of this energy. So they they are able to uh, you know, take up dissolved organic carbon. So that's a resource that's not available to any of the other, or most of the other reef organisms. If anything, you know, corals, etc., they can take up very small amounts of that, but it's it's not really meaningful. Sponges can completely tap into this resource, and most of the most of the carbon that's floating around is
4: floating around in this form. Um, can I ask if a quick question? quick question can we use CRISPR to genetically modify these things and like start an open source movement and be like yo man we're gonna use sponges we you know we, we need to, here's the goals we need to filter out carbon co2 stuff and and make the our waste go into them as the input um and uh make them bigger and like we give the specs and then everybody jams out with CRISPR and like how could we do this at home where we just bypass like you know is this something we could do at home with our kids
0: like in the US you're not allowed to anymore. Like biohacking is um strictly not a logical prison for that. Um I I think the first we have to do is screen their genes better and know the functions and then we can go in and modify it in a way that makes sense. But Nick you probably know better.
2: Yeah,
1: I would 100% agree with that that's exactly what we would have to do and then then it's actually possible right to to identify certain functions and then inject inject those genes into uh, sponges or um you know microbes and that's that's the other thing um regarding what you said um Ma, the, these um sponges as as uh, energy producers and cleaners at the same time um that's exactly what's being done with microbial fuel cells, right? I don't know if you, if any of you knows that, Ben. If you know MFCs, um, where you basically have a sort of an electrolysis, and um, you have microbes in there that they they degrade your your organic waste, uh, so we could literally clean our poop, um, and at the same time produce energy because they, you get the potential difference from their activity and you can harness that energy. Um, and you, they're not very efficient yet, but this is a nice combination of, of these two functions. And then why, why, use, why do that with sponges um, when you don't need the spatial structure that they create, which is really the only advantage you have compared to just using microbes. Um, and if you can genetically engineer those to be more efficient, um, you know, you just need the slur and you, you place it into your chamber and it does its thing and whether that's a structural sponge or just a mat of, of microbes, doesn't really matter, does it?
2: So awesome, awesome, interesting
9: conversation. So I did a quick calculation, assuming a sensible number of PSI, pounds per square inch of output, these things even at a thousand litres a day are not gonna produce a lot of power, uh, like measurable in watts at the most, like one watt on the order of one watt. So I think the pumping power production probably isn't, isn't there. I'm not sure they're gonna appreciate being strapped to a machine and, <laughs> uh, and back pressured. Um, but the water cleaning sounds fascinating. Thermal thermal production sounds fascinating. Sometimes um, in like sustainable production, it doesn't actually even matter about efficiency necessarily if there's a ton of it. Um, we don't necessarily sometimes worry about efficiency. For, so, for example, you know, I want to store enough electrical energy to get through the winter in my particular example in the UK. I and mean, it doesn't really matter if I lose half the energy. I have such an abundance of solar energy, free, abundant solar power in the summer. But if i waste half of that going to hydrogen back or some weird system it doesn't really matter um
2: the prior- Uh oh happy where would you go what happened yeah
1: <laughs> interesting calculation though so and and he's probably about right like a what uh
4: he's back there he goes okay. no, by, by, by the way, nicholas the room we would do later the, the one we we're talking about, oh by the way um ben just so you know we're gonna do a broom later in pillar trap nicholas so we're, I'll I'll put you in a group and we'll we'll schedule the the session.
9: Cool. I'll be listen only later. But sorry, I I, <laughs> I switched to club deck in order to start getting ready to do my room. <laughs> and of course, that kills me. Um, so yeah, what I was just saying is sometimes efficiency doesn't doesn't matter. Actually, you know, sometimes you you've got so much of an abundance at one time that just being able to store or, or, or defer to to somewhere else in space or time. I don't mean that in a woo-woo way, I mean, later or somewhere distant. Sometimes, if you've got an abundance in place A in space or time, um, inefficiency in getting it to place B is not necessarily an issue, um, if you see what I mean. So just as a thought, we don't necessarily care about abundance all the time. But uh, anyway, I-, I mean, not abundance, efficiency, but uh, I better run to, to my room. Um, but uh, fantastic, and I've followed you, and I'd be interested. I love your profile. It says three of the things very close. to scientist, nice. Bitcoiner, me too. Apprentice of nature, cool. I'm trying to be, but I'm failing miserably, but I'm working on it. So, yeah, it'd be great to, to, to talk in the future. Yeah, I loved your input,
1: definitely. I'm going to be following you, and let's it's definitely uh, catch up.
9: Yeah, thanks, and thanks, Katrina, for have, having me here. And, yeah, I run, like, rooms on sustainable living at this time now, now every weekday. So I'm about to go off, and we're having an indigenous person coming in to talk to us. So i better go and uh, learn from them. They know far more than I do about how we're screwing the planet up. So <laughs> see you soon. Cool. Fine.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think- um, Wait, wait, hold
4: on, hold on, before you before you run off, Ben, uh, just real quick. Hey, can you tell us, hey, so you're doing the
9: room right now in like four minutes, right? What's, what's the room on, what's the topic today? Le- learning from indigenous people. We have an indigenous tribes person coming over to tell us uh, what we're doing wrong. <laughs> I think we should probably uh, prick our ears up because they're the ones suffering from our actions. It'd be interesting. That sounds we super
1: interesting.
4: Oh, his rooms are fascinating. Yeah, everybody here, like I would say, strongly recommend you follow Ben. Uh, he has cool rooms. That he does, and uh, he'll have one starting in four minutes. So follow Ben and check out his sustainable rooms. And he's got like an entire
9: series of like what fifty plus of these. Yeah, things. nearly sixty. Yeah, and we've had like we get near we get on the order of a thousand people through each one, which is weird considering it they're they're such almost esoteric topics. But anyway, people seem to like them. It's because of the guests. We have such good guests come on, but, um, like Albert here in the followed by speakers, like a uh, like Joyce here on stage, like a. Uh, like everybody who comes, really, so it's the guests that make it, so thanks everybody anyway, I better go run this puppy, so see you soon
2: yeah, so
0: thank it's you good. so much again, Nick uh, for coming and for your amazing research um please come back when you ever want to share like uh science again, uh follow you know um let me know, and you guys. Uh, do a room, and um, yeah, thanks everyone for coming, participating, um, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day, or evening, or morning, wherever you are, and uh, we'll have a room again on Friday, this week, um, which will be um, with Valtteri Wickstrom, he uh, found out that, um, Interbrain synchronization from people that are far apart um, of each other, when they do online gaming, and you studied that, and I think it's really interesting. Um, you know how brains synchronize when they are doing similar things. Uh, it can give. I think it will give you us a lot of insight about the effects it has on us on a larger scale. Um, you know, the more we kind of, like the more the humanity is exposed to the media and the same stuff, like we had Miguel Nicoleta this year and Ronald Zikral talking a little bit about it, how our brains will adapt to that and kind of all become the same and what will happen to creativity and different ways of thinking. So I know that he maybe didn't think of that when he was doing the research, but I'm really interested to ask him these questions um, based on the synchronization, because that's kind of the first hint that Miguel Nicolaylis and Ronald Zikorel were kind of right. Uh, so keep your brain diverse. <laughs> Go to the ocean like Nick and maybe save some, some corals on the way and do different things. And um, yeah, I wish you all a great day and hear you all back soon, hopefully. Thanks, Nick.
2: Thanks,
4: Katarina. Thanks, Maha. Bye. Bye. You're welcome, guys. And Katarina and Nicholas, check your back channel. Let me create a group message with both of you and Ben, and we'll uh, find a day that works for all of us uh, for the deep dive.
0: Perfect. Okay. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.
2: Thank you.